Welcome to OT Unplugged, Community of Practice Insights. Join Sarah Collison, Nikki Cousins and Elise Spence as they talk about the latest news and emerging themes from the NDIS OT Community of Practice. In this week's episode, we chat about the NDIS pricing review, managing client expectations and client visits gone terribly wrong. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to episode three of the OT Unplugged Community of Practice Insights podcast. I'm joined again today with Nikki Cousins and Elise Spence to talk about all things NDIS and OT. How's the week going this week, Nikki? Nick, last week it was a crap week, so tell me what's this week like. What, do I even have to say it's another crap week? I feel like it's always a crap week in the NDIS. No, it's slightly better. I'm happy this week because um, one of my participants suddenly got a change of circumstances plan review completed and I asked his mum for the timeline because they all seem to be taking excessive amounts of time at the moment. Don't even bother putting them in because you'll get to plan review time before they get to it anyway. She put it in on the 30th of December and it was through by the 2nd or 3rd of February. I was like, what did you do? Please tell me. And she just said, oh, we just contacted the LAC and asked for it. And I'm like, why is this so hard? Or did the process work for the first time ever? Fantastic. Yeah, I was like, oh, well, that's no golden nugget that I can take and use with someone else because we've tried that and it doesn't work. So anyway, but I was very happy when that happened. It made me a little bit more, okay, we're good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Right. Maybe we're seeing a change. Maybe the tides are turning. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I had a client email me yesterday saying, just checking where we're at with that variation on the home mods because the build has already started. We've run out of money. And I'm like, they haven't even sent me a read receipt. So it might be, mm-hmm. I need to have a conversation with the builder about whether he should be continuing or whether we need to maybe just slow down and take a short break because I actually have another client from back mid-November where we had to request a variation due to unforeseen excavation works and it still hasn't been processed so the builders finished the job now because it happened part way through but we're still waiting but what do you do with that i'm just kind of got a very nice builder that's been quite patient thinking about the building industry at the moment like we're pretty tenuous in a lot of building businesses that they're going to be able to hold much of this space yeah and it's a conversation i actually have at the start with all the builders now to say I need you to be really thorough on your visit because we do not want a variation because number one, NDIS don't like them because they've made a decision on value for money based on the numbers we've given them. But number two, getting that variation processed is really difficult and time consuming and no guarantee. So we really don't want to be sitting there waiting for you to get paid and the work's already been completed. So let yep. be thorough. If there's a problem, you tell me now and we get it sorted before we get any construction underway. Yeah. Crazy. What about you, Elise? Oh, I've been doing some clinical work this week. It's been exciting. <laughs> I'm doing a midway through a functional at the moment. It's actually a very interesting process doing it for little kids. So this one's sick. And it's just such a waste of time. It is a waste of time. It is such a comprehensive, it's going to be this massive report for no good reason, aside from them trying to get like a change of circumstances, but not really, oh, I find it so frustrating because we see these heaps in the paid space and requesting functionals for three-year-olds and four-year-olds and Mm -hmm. like this, that standard OT report, we don't need to do this extensive thing, but it needs to be termed this functional capacity. So yeah, anyway, it's just interesting doing one after coaching so many people through it for the last little while. And I did one last year for an older child, like a teenager, where it made much, much more sense. But for such a little person who 
uh, is just in the therapy journey and actually just needs to have that therapy support for right now. So yeah, been interesting process. So I'm having a wonderful time writing it rather than editing everybody else's functionals at present. No, very good. Okay, big week. Uh, speaking of change in circumstance that you just mentioned there, we talked a lot last episode about some of the delays that we're seeing around assistive technology um, applications and home mods applications at the moment. And there's been a few other things that have flared up in the last week in relation to that. One of the things that's being reported at the moment is that we're getting a lot of kickback from the agency for any time an AT or home mods application is being submitted saying that we now require a change in circumstances form to be lodged as well, which we've never had to do before. I have reached out to the NDI to see what's happening there because, as I said, it's not something we've been previously requested. And thank you to those OTs that did send me some examples of the emails that they have received from the agency on this. I've passed them over to the NDIA. And the initial response I've had is that it is not a requirement and they are investigating what's happening internally in terms of the communication around that to see why it's suddenly being put out as being a requirement. So hopefully we'll have some answers for that in the next week because it's just another piece of paperwork that has to be completed to obviously get that AT request process for a participant now. What did you um, say earlier, Sarah, just before we jumped on that the NDIA came back and said someone was sending out erroneous emails? <laughs> so that, that erroneous communication was for a different issue. Oh, so right. That, that was the issue relating to OTs submitting AT applications for mid-cost and getting an email back to say, you don't need to send this rice yeah. approval, yeah. you can just go ahead and buy it, except there's no funding in the plan. So the question back to the agency was, what, how are we supposed to pay yeah. if there's no money? That's the whole point of, of sending through the AT request and the quotes. And so, yes, the response from the agency was that this was an erroneous email, it's an error, and that they have fixed that miscommunication internally and will be following up to make sure that's rectified. If you are an OT and you're still getting a response that says you can just go ahead and spend the money and there's no money to spend, I, I, my suggestion would be to push back and to say, Actually, we've been advised that this was an email miscommunication and that, no, this does need to be processed for approval by the NDA so that funding can actually be added to the plan to proceed with purchase. Do you think this just takes us into communication is so poor in this space? Like it is so hard. We're so lucky we have a group like this. But how do therapists across Australia stay up to date with this information? If you're not in this group, you'd have no idea that this was something that was happening or anything like that. I mean, we joked last week about how Facebook has become this source of knowledge for OTs working in this space. And I think it's one of the things that has strengthened the community of practice over recent years in that we've had to rely on each other for that communication. the NGIA doesn't know far out. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. I think the scheme has become so big. We Back in the very early days, I can remember going to provider briefings where mm-hmm. we'd have these round tables. They would release a new process and we'd all be invited and we'd sit there and we'd talk and we could ask questions and that just doesn't happen anymore. Even like we were in the trial site and I remember going to meetings with a rep from OTA and saying, here's our feedback, this is working, this isn't working. And then they would have a feedback pathway up through Andaria. And then that went out very, I think it was gone before the end of the trial. It's lucky we've mm. got you, Sarah, who has that in to have somebody direct that you can speak to. But aside from that, it's very tricky trying to find clarity. Yeah. And look, that's not me having some sort of special like direct pathway. That's just me going, I want an answer and I'm going to email whoever I can mm. think of to get it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really frustrating when and particularly when you feel like 
your client gets that response as well. And then they look at you like, what have you done wrong? Like, why didn't you know this? And you're like, well, none of us knew. Nobody's told us. I'm not even sure that what we're being told is correct. And you just feel like you're then under that pressure from your client as well to be the one that has to explain what's going on. It's similar to what I was saying about those functionals, particularly in the paid space, because there's this push from external providers saying you need to have a functional, but you actually need therapy. So we're wasting 10 to 15 hours to write a functional that you don't really need. That's wasted all of your therapy time for a little person. That That's actually a big chunk of therapy that you could be receiving. Mm. So it's so hard, but the external pressure is coming saying they need a functional. You're like, well, what though? I could tell you right off exactly what their concerns are because it's not as complex. Obviously, there are very complex children, but this is not for the very complex presentations. Mm. But yeah, just that that communication up and down. I had to have this quite strong conversation with the parents there around NDIS shouldn't be fund. What you're asking for isn't really realistic that NDIS would fund. Like, it is really tricky to get kids to school in the morning. That's really hard. At the moment, that falls within parental responsibility. You haven't met the threshold just yet that a support worker would be appropriate to come in and they're not going to pass that. And that's like you were saying last week, Nikki, like having to look through with the main NDIS lens and be like, no, 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 no. Like that's absolutely not going to get funded. But then we are the person having to say that to them instead of that being the standard of it has to meet this threshold and then you can get this sort of support here. Yeah. I think those conversations about you know, what will and won't be funded are really key in terms of managing expectations about what happens when we are submitting something and what to expect when it comes back. And well, we had one of our therapists wrote a functional for a child who actually needed quite substantial support and increase in supports and his funding got cut in half. So her functional is amazing. This very well-known psychonal area end up having to write this big mean letter of this kid needs this support. Absolutely, it needs to be funded. But like the risk that we run is if we go and do this, you could lose all of your funding as well. It could go in one or two ways. Yeah. And it's so hard because we we get those clients who have those genuine needs where we're like, we really need this to be very clear evidence, very clear justification. And then on the other hand, we often get those clients where we're like, well, no, I don't think the NDIS is going to fund that. So we've had one this week where the the builder is, oh, the kind of handyman service that we use has contacted us because he needs to know where to send the quote for because while he was there making adjustments to the bed, the client also asked him on a quote to paint the ceiling in the bedroom <laughs> to change some of the door handles on the door. And there was a third thing I can't remember. And I was like, no, did he do that while he was there? No, he didn't, thankfully. He was just asked to quote. But I was like, no, that's not stuff that's going to be paid for. It's not helpful when you say, sure, sure, I'll go and get that quoted. Yeah, that's right. And look, we've had a few of those over the years. And I guess my question for you guys is how do you manage those conversations? How do you, when someone asks you for something that you know won't be funded or maybe it's something where it's a bit gray like how do you have that conversation with them to try and manage those expectations i think it depends on what it is some things i'll be like look this is a bit great i will have a go because i don't disagree with what you're arguing but please be aware i'm not sure that this will come across the line and to the others that are quite completely unreasonable like we got one yesterday once again for a tablet and a google homepod because my son needs my laptop now and I can't afford to buy another yeah. laptop. So can I use, I, I need a tablet for myself. It's just a no. I'm sorry, no. And very blunt, no. <laughs> we ended up putting together a checklist for my team because they were all, we had quite a few new grads at that point. 
And it's, is this value for money? Tick yes, no. Is this specifically related to disability? And they had to go through that. So then they had something physical to give back to the family Mm -hmm. if it was a no, 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 no. And that made it a bit easier. And I've shared that out with quite a few therapists, but it is super tricky. I think it's hard as well when they're requesting things and you don't really know whether they're going to get it or not. And speaking to so many early career therapists, they just don't know what might get through, what might not, like what meets that threshold and what makes the criteria again, because that's not clear. And if you're in any of the PEDS groups, half of your therapists are getting through sensory equipment. The other half, like we won't even try because the resounding feedback is no, don't do it. It shouldn't be funded by NDIS. But then you've got a big portion of people still getting it through. So it's just Mm. the disparity is so difficult to navigate. Back in the old days under Faxia for us, we just had $2,000 you recommended as a therapist and they got it. So there wasn't this toss up that somebody else approved what it was that you were recommending. It makes it very, very tricky. So funny about the sensory stuff. So when I was at Atza Canberra at the end of last year, the NDIS stall was next to a sensory store. (laughs) And I bumped into the person on that stall and she was like, oh, the NDI actually came over and said, you know, sensory items aren't funded. Yeah. They're not sensory items. They're for emotional regulation. That's right. I'm a registered provider because half of your sensory providers are registered providers and you're like, disparity, how has this got through? Like you're saying, this doesn't get funded, but they're a registered provider. Yeah. But you know, one of the things I've always struggled with with the NDIS is the difference between what someone who is self-managed can get oh, yeah, and what someone who is planned and NDIS managed can get. You know, that's annoys me in the group that people say, oh, has anyone ever got this approved? And someone will come back and go, yeah, yeah, I've got an approved heaps. Yeah. I just submitted a quote to the plan manager and they paid it. That's not approved. That's not approved. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah, during COVID, we had clients that were buying toilet paper with NDIS funds, hoarding toilet paper. Don't you think it's tricky, like, at what point are these sometimes things that you just have to purchase? Oh, that's what I find in this pediatric space. I'm very happy to recommend something if you genuinely would not be buying that for other reasons. But you would typically have a trampoline in your home. However, for a 13, 14 year old who's really seeking that and you don't have that, that makes very much sense. That's really easy to justify. But I remember Faxi, I used to recommend like playground equipment, all of these things. And these days I'm like, no, that's parent responsibility. Unless you genuinely have a child that their needs cannot be met in any other way, they're not coming in in that way. That's right. The difference there is that then I work in the adult space and not an everyday expense. So if you read the guideline, it is very clear if you go through it. And it talks about the evidence. This evidence is all to do with children in ASD. Like nothing is there to do with adults. Anyway, you can email me about that if you need. I will argue this point until the cows come home. So the guide to self-management has been updated recently and it's Mm. quite a good document in in being very clear about what can and can't be funded. And so, Elise, when you talked about that checklist that you have internally, I know a lot of participants will use, I think it's page 15 of this document that kind of has a bit of a checklist of that NDIS criteria. And what they do is they'll go through and they tick it off and then they keep it with that invoice as a record of, this was the decision making that I went through to to purchase it. But it is hard when you might have another participant who could tick those boxes as well, but then you have a plan manager that's acting as a gatekeeper and just preventing anything from being purchased when there is a real legitimate need for it. I've had some success going into battle with plan managers lately on just the last few months of where they've come back and said, we can't fund this because it's an everyday item. I'm like, let me tell you how you're wrong. And they've actually (laughs) come back and said, 
Okay, thank you. We're now funding it. I've taken them to the complaints before and said mm-hmm. they're refusing to do it. And this was before when you could actually get a response from the complaints line, whereas mm-hmm. you can't now. But super, super frustrating. Yeah, definitely. We were going to go into and have a chat around the pricing review. So we've got the pricing review coming up. Now, this paper, you were, NDIS is requesting that you're doing, and I think it's by the 6th of March, and NECA Consulting have put out a really great paper that they're encouraging you to use as a template for your evidence that you need to send back to NDIS. Now, we were going to briefly chat about what this pricing review means for all of us. For those of you who maybe haven't been around for the past five years, we've pretty much stayed stagnant in the pricing guide, and that's If any of you think about how expensive the cost of living has gotten, the cost of running a practice is well along the same lines. It is really tricky and hard to sort of maintain where we're sitting. And so there's currently three different areas that we want you to think about. So there's the NACRA consulting one that you can send directly back to NDIS. We'll pop that into the show notes so that you guys can find that. And thank you, Kathy and Chantal, for putting that together. And then we've got the OTA have put out a a survey as well. Sarah shared it earlier in the group. We'll try and link that through too. I sat down to do it, but you need to have all of your data collected and it's asking questions like, how much does it cost you to provide a service to an NDIS participant over your other scheme participants, over your private participants, but a fully loaded session. So including all your admin overheads, costs, everything. So you're actually going to have to take some time sitting there. But what I guess between all of it, that is what they're asking. They need to see what the evidence is that there needs to be pricing changes happening in this space. I know there are still people out there who are in a space of saying 193 is really, really high. I don't understand how you can't run a business with that. It is really hard. So for us, we have three clinic spaces. So we are fully running three clinic spaces while offering a mobile service, while having assessment tools, while having staff, supporting staff. So I completely get it when it's just you and maybe one or two other people and you're working on the road and you're working from home, your overheads are very different to a fully established clinic-based service. So I think just be mindful of that. We want to work together to make sure that we are clearly articulating what the cost of doing a business is. And particularly if you're quite early in business, I know it's really yucky and hard to think about a profit, but we can't support our community unless businesses run in a profit. So Sarah, there's been a lot of chat around that over the years around that profit margin piece. And I know Julianne talks a lot about thinking profit is such an important piece. If we don't run a profit, we can't increase salaries. We can't do, we can't be innovative. We can't do any of these things. So I know it seems like a bit of a yucky space, but do you two, like, what are your two thoughts around that? What profit? We have one clinic space at least, but yeah, we have part-times, but add them together as one full staff member, actually more now in administrations. But well, how much does that person earn a year? So where does that money come from? Because they're not bringing in income. The actual cost of rent. Uh, we have uh, a work car, all the therapy. Our cleaners. At one of our places, we have to get our lawns mowed. So again, <laughs> another cost that we have to pay. Look, in that spot, I was doing the OTA survey the other day, and it was talking about what's been your profit in previous years versus this year. And I'm like, there, there is no profit. It's gotten to that point. I think it's really tricky. It wasn't helpful as well. I don't know if you guys heard when Bill Shorten was talking about the pricing review, and he was saying, Imagine if a teacher was paid $193 an hour. And you're like, that's well and good, but you're funding their offices, you're funding their principal, you're funding support staff, cleaners, 
survey everything else. You're also funding all those things in a therapy practice, in a service-based practice. The only money coming into a service is from the services that they provide. And this is where we hit a bit of a hard point. And realistically, from a staff retention point, we can't increase billables. Like you can't go, which is the only way to make more money is to increase billables. We can't do that because that's not fair or realistic for staff because then they burn out and then they leave the workforce. So we're in this really tricky, tricky space, I think. So I'm actually preparing the presentation for Thursday's training around Mm. navigating billable time. And you can't bill for the whole day. Like there's, there are just these activities that are non-billable. And those are things like staff training, supervision, meetings. It's all of those things that enable a business to run that you can't bill for those. So your, your therapists have to be able to engage in those activities. It's essential for the business to operate. So it means there's only a certain number of hours in the day where they, they can actually bill any time. I think the thing that really frustrates me is that there's such a there's been such a target on our backs for the last 12 to 18 months about the price mm-hmm. for therapy and like you say Elise we don't keep 193 an hour no one's taken home like 194 bucks yeah the FTO is knocking on my door wanting a fair chunk of that thank you yeah. so a lot of that goes to tax a lot of that goes to wages a significant amount goes to wages because we have got experienced therapists we want to pay them well we want to keep them in the field so we've got a that's where their salaries is paid from but there are all those other things. Super is now 11%, right? That's great. But yes, that's another cost that keeps going up every year yep. when the hourly rate hasn't been going up. And what it leads to is it doesn't allow for innovation service, like you said, but it also doesn't allow for flexibility. So last year we made the decision, I had been reviewing some of our numbers and realized that we had lost in non-billable travel. So us going and seeing clients outside of the 30 minutes was costing us about $30,000 per three-month period, mm-hmm. right, in time that wasn't billed for. Can't keep absorbing that. Same. This functional that I did yesterday sits out, so it's 38 minutes from our Belmont Clinic, and I used to always service that area. Now, we tend to block travel, so we'll do, go to a general area and it's blocked. And I'm like, this is an hour and 10 minutes that I am just spending on that client to go do this one-off functional. We're not going to be able to block it anymore because that's lost time. It's lost time. But then it's fine me wearing that. But my team, I have to pay them for that time. So these are things I talk about when we do the training around setting up your private practice. When we start scaling, you can't absorb these things because now you have to pay everybody else for all of these things. So last year, we introduced the kilometers travel because we were paying, like reimbursing our staff. hundreds and hundreds of dollars because we just service such a large kilometer area. We have a few work cars, but not enough for the whole team. Every month we would be (laughs) thousands of dollars that we're paying back in kilometers that we're not charging any extra for. So it just gets so tricky having to try and keep that balance. But again, when the rate was a little bit higher, we could absorb some of these things. But now we're at flatlining and we have to figure out how else we can sort of even our way up. Yeah. I think the other thing that concerns me is that from the participant perspective, I can understand how they th- they see 193 as being a really large amount of money. Yeah. But I think the thing that we need to ensure that's understood is that if the endorse were to change that rate from 193 and let's say they made it 170, the participant doesn't still get 193 an hour budgeted in their plan. The, the plans are built on the hourly rate. So if the endorse funds... 10 hours at 193 an hour, that's 1930 that goes in the plan. If they drop the rate to say 170, it's 10 times 170, 
Like yeah, participants yeah. are not going to get more money if the rate were to I drop. I think this is what's and really tricky, thinking what's in that. I think someone shared about what's in the participant questionnaire where they're saying, does your therapist suggest, say that this is the NDIS price guide and that's what they pay? That's what they used to tell us to say, like charge to the price guide. Back in the old days when it was the 179, it was, this is the NDIS price guide, that is what you're, not a cap, that was the price guide. And now in the last sort of three years, they've tried to switch the language without giving any increase to say that's a cap and you shouldn't be charging the cap. You're like, okay, but we have to. And also we provide all of these additional things. The other thing that I think is important to note when we talk about these things, when you're primarily a face-to-face therapy provision service, this gets a lot harder because you don't bill your true time for everything else that you do. So that I think is really hard when we do look at billables because it is really tricky and something to be really mindful of is how are you navigating all this extra stuff that you do outside of your face-to-face sessions? Because if you're not billing effectively for that, then your team are doing all this extra work and you're not able to sort of recoup that space. So that's something in the pediatric space that's really a big challenging area to be mindful of. Yeah. Look, some of the questions in the participant paper are quite leading and it's really disappointing that it doesn't really allow for, I guess, those more qualitative questions or beyond what's just on paper for people to be able to respond to. One of the questions is, rate how strongly you agree with the following statement, the prices I pay for my services and supports are reasonable. That's okay. Well, it's a very leading question there. Mm-hmm. And another question is, do you pay the same price as a person who is not an NDIS participant? And I mean, this has been something that's being talked about a lot, but there are different schemes that we are all providing services under and not every functional assessment looks the same. And look, going back to NACA Consulting again, they did a really good article prior to... It was fantastic. ...about the difference between going in and seeing your physio when you're an NDIS participant versus when you go see your physio if you've just, like me, busted your knee on the netball court. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. I had gone in to see my physio for a one-on-one. I've had a lot of physio in the last 12 months. I'm paying $116 for a half-hour session. Like, I'm paying well above what they yeah. would be charging an NDIS participant for an hour session. And I choose to go there because they're a good physio and I know that that's the price I'm paying for. So there, there is always going to be price differentiation. But I, I think the, the issue that the agency have is when if you've got a provider that says to a participant, okay, the price is 170 an hour and then the participant says I'm an NDIS participant and they go, okay, well, now it's 193 an hour. Yeah, it doesn't look good. But then if you think about the admin requirements to establish an NDIS participant to get paid, Mm -hmm. I was even thinking about this earlier, your private clients pay on the day. There's no chasing up. There's no service agreement that you need to sign. They sign a consent form when they're there, done, dusted, session over. Don't need Mm -hmm. to think about them again. But your NDIS participants regardless of whether they're self-managed or whatever, if you're doing best practice, which is getting accurate service agreement, updating every time you're changing, this is admin dense things. These are such big portions of where this extra work comes from. And yeah, while these things are being required, while that's still best practice, that's where we are absorbing those costs. Some people are absorbing it, the therapists are doing it. Sometimes we've got admin teams that are doing it. But these are all the good practice things that we're trying to put out there, but they cost money. Yeah, they really do. And look, we talked a lot last week about pace and and the nightmare (laughs) of administration processes that are going to be required because of pace. I met with a a lovely provider yesterday over in WA 
And there's so little information out there. They don't even know how to get onto Pace. That was the first thing we did was, okay, let's look at how we get onto Pace. And then, yes, when they got on there, they saw that they already had some participants that were linked and they were like, we don't even know how they got there. What do we do with them? And so it was really just to have a chat about what's involved. But I think that's one of the problems. I've got these two links saved, right, where I know it's the only place I could get the info I was looking for for Pace. Like, I really haven't made it easy at all. So, yeah, if I can help, then I'm happy to help. So yeah, so we've got this pricing paper. It is due in the next few weeks. For practice owners, you're going to need to have some data to to kind of dig into and, and look at. That NACRA one, it is full on. I'm tired of writing <laughs> these reports and, and every year submitting them to the NDIS for the last, or whomever, for the last five years saying, yep, this is why, this is why. And they just come back and go, oh, I look at that and I'm like, I feel really bad, team. I feel really bad for, that I'm letting down the profession, but I'm just like, I'm really tired of doing this. I think it feels like that that it just comes up every year and it is exhausting. Yeah. It's that kind of same discussion over and over. And, it, and it's and just it like feel, a token report. It's, it's coming off the back of that. We had a really yucky Christmas period where OT was like absolutely smashed yeah. very heavily while we were all on leave. Some of us have had some tricky starts to the year as well. Like, I feel like I'm running on empty. I don't know that I've got all these extra to come out fighting and really do all this. And I know from talking to many people across the community, so, so many people are in this space. But I guess this is an important thing. And I think, Sarah, you've said this before, like this thing, if we don't put our voices out there, there is a really strong risk that the pressing will go backwards. So if we do not put this out here, we're all really running at a bit of a risk. So it is important that, yeah. We dig deep, Nick, and we put something together. You know what? I think what's adding to that exhaustion is that we're often fighting for ourselves around this time of year where we're having to think about us as a provider and all that. But I feel like as well in the last few months, we're fighting a lot more for our participants too. There's a lot more going on for participants with plans being cut or delays in getting things funded. And, and I think that that kind of compounds that feeling of exhaustion. It's not just us we're fighting for our teams and our practices. We're fighting heavily for our participants as well. And I think that there's only some, so much we have in the tank. I look, every time we come to pricing reviews each year, I think that it's going to be cut. <laughs> and I was speaking to my accountant last week. He actually laughed at me when I said that. And I said, no, I said, he's a genuine concern. He's like, the government wouldn't do that. They <laughs> wouldn't go back and change. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. They've tried to do this before. And so not everyone will remember this, but back in around 2015, 2016, something like that, we had what was called the McKinsey Report, mm. which was a review done by McKinsey and Associates of, on pricing at the time. And one of the things that, this was when we were on around, it must have been about 117 hours was the hourly rate. And one of the things that it proposed was tiered pricing. Yeah. And there was going to be three tiers. There was going to be, brace yourselves, 110 an hour for our simple NDIS participants. (laughs) Don't know who they are because apparently they are less complex, maybe only have less support, one disability or that kind of thing. And then there was like a second tier and a third tier. And there was massive backlash at the time, like when this paper was produced and the NDIS had said they were going to adopt it. And all of the peaks came together, National Disability Services, which is a big peak body in the NDIS space, and it was quashed. It didn't go ahead. 
but it was going to. Yeah. And, and I, yep. it's very close. And let's not forget that we're dealing with the same federal government that has a DVA schedule, which I don't know about you, but we don't do DVA. And I don't know any kind of small to medium providers that do DVA. I know a lot of sole traders who might do it because they're able to they can. can. They can, right? And because they don't have the same overheads. What's not to say that they would try to bring something like that in? And and I think if that were to happen, it could be disastrous for yeah. the allied health sector and the NGIS space. So I think going into pricing review, it's always a good opportunity to also have a look at what are we doing in terms of our service delivery and our billing? Where have we got leakage? And when I talk about leakage, I'm like, where do we have inefficient processes that need to be tightened up? And this is what I went through last year when I mentioned about the travel, that we had all of this travel time that we were doing and we weren't being paid for. And unfortunately, it meant we now kind of pulled back our travel radius. Uh, um, we're, we're not able to charge um, non-labor. Um, so I'll tell you why. So in the price guide... <laughs> You can charge the non-labor to a participant if you are reimbursing your staff for their mileage, right? Now, my staff is a mix of employees and a mix of some subcontractors. And we don't reimburse subcontractors for their mileage because they're subcontractors. So because of that, I can't work out which participant is going to be allocated to an employer or a subcontractor. So I, I can't as a blanket say, well, we're just going to charge that travel fee that kilometer mileage fee. So we we had to say, we're not going to do it because we just can't. But it meant that we had to change something else just to ensure we could remain sustainable. So, and I think we need to talk about that difference between the term profitability and sustainability. We're talking about being able to continue to still employ therapists. And we're talking about being able to ensure that they can still pay for the things that they need to pay for, for their family and their home And life. have the admin staff to support them as well. Yeah. yeah. So look, well, I feel like we've kind of ended on a bit of a yeah. Let's let's know? move so it let's, back to something. Let's move fun. back to something fun. <laughs> let's move it back to and look. This post was a couple of weeks old, but we missed talking about it last week. But it was one of the best posts I've seen in the group for quite some time, which was all the things that have gone wrong on a client visit or a client interaction. And there was some doozies of people becoming unwell or having feeling a- the car going off for a drive. Yes, that's right. Yeah, some really good ones. And it made me think about some good ones that I've had. I've actually got two I'm going to share because they're equally funny. But my first one was I used to work in the return to work space and I was the return to work consultant for Peppers Fairmont up in the Blue Mountains. It's a beautiful resort, right? I was in my first year out of uni, drive up there, sit in the car for a little bit, just enjoying the you know ambiance. And I get out of the car, close it, realize I've locked everything in the car my keys, my phone, my notebook, my pen. I have nothing on me. I'm just standing beside this car going, I've got to go do an initial. How am I going to do this? So I go to front reception. Can I have a pen and a notepad, please? <laughs> and can you call the NRMA for me? I <laughs> had to do my initial. And yeah, the came back out, still waiting. NRMA finally turned up. I was mortified. I was so embarrassed. But my other run that I'd had, was like, this was when I was in the UK as I'd gone to see a client at his home. And I don't know why, as I was leaving, I just was reversing around. I couldn't get in the right direction. And I backed into the front fence, a front <laughs> brick fence, and knocked it over with such a <laughs> that, yes, the brick wall fell over. And I, I got out and I started crying. He came out. It's okay. 
It's okay. Poor thing. I'll ring my boss. He's like, it's all right. We'll pay for it. I'm like, okay. But yeah, I have this photo on my phone still of this fence that fallen over that had to be rebuilt. So, what about you, Elise? What have you got? Mm, I don't really have any good fun ones. I, I was just thinking about your one. When I was a student, I was on placement in Canberra and I went to go and check out Vision Australia just for funsies, locked myself out of the car. So I was in like coming back. I was like, oh, um, I can't leave and I actually can't get to placement and I'm like doing something I'm not really meant to be doing and I want to go over here. So yeah, that was a fun time. I was thinking Nick said this earlier something about a dog, but I have always not really liked dogs or not a huge animal person. Actually, I do have a really good one. Don't love lizards. Really do oh. love lizards. But our families have lots of eclectic animals and things like that. So when I was pregnant, if I would see like a blue tongue lizard, it would make me gag and nearly vomit. So yes, I've had a couple where they've had lizards running around. And I have to be like, I just can't come inside, guys. Until that goes away, I cannot enter. Yeah, they're my fun ones. What about you, Nick? Probably the ones that came to mind was when I was pregnant and I was on the wards at the, at the time and I was such a happy chucker. Like I was vomiting all over those wards and I'd be in a client assessment and I have an aversion to sputum. If I start talking about it, I will literally start uh, gagging. And I just remember seeing this one lady one day who had locked in syndrome and she had a stroke and I had to wipe the egg white sputum off it. <laughs> and I felt so bad for the poor lady because we found out a few weeks later she was locked in and she could actually communicate. And so she would have known that I was in the corner just gagging away after I wiped this egg white sputum off her face because I, I just cannot handle anything to do with sputum. Oh, my goodness. Your story about animals, it's funny when you hear other people's stories that jogs your memories. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. another one I had when I was in the UK, I went to see this lady and she had 12 cats. These things were giants. Like I've never seen cats this big. They were massive. But they were all crowding around us in the lounge room. And so when I sat down, I had three cats on one side, two cats behind me. It was just the weirdest thing in the world. I see your 12 cats and I raised 17 cats in two main coons. Oh, my goodness. Um, like I have no allergies, nothing. And I, was, I felt like I was having an asthma attack when I was leaving this house. I don't have asthma. And I just remember being at the door and trying to get out and suddenly the client yelled, like at the top of his, and I'm like, what, what? And he's gone, oh, sorry, puss was about to spray you. <laughs> God, think about it again. Oh, okay. Yeah, we've definitely ended on a high note there. So oh. with that, thank you guys for another catch up this week. And we'll be back next week to talk about more things NDIS. Thank you for listening to OT Unplugged Community of Practice Insights. Join us for next week's episode as we chat about finding and refining your scope of practice journey, plus the latest news from the OT community of practice.